Good morning. Let's prepare our hearts for the proclamation of the word through the ministry of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love to us, your patience with us, and your mercy and your grace. It is a joy for us to gather together with brothers and sisters to worship you and express our love and our thanks to you. And to be able to express our love to one another, our affection at being part of this same family. Father, this is too a continuation of our worship as we give our careful attention to the proclamation of the word. We'd ask that your Holy Spirit would fall powerfully among us, that we would sense your presence with us, that you would speak your words to us, bring them alive to our hearts, change us how we live. For we ask this for the glory of the name of your son, Jesus, so we ask it in his name. Amen. Connie and I used to live in a small farming community, about 900 people. What? Kids, you may leave. I'm, I think it's going to be R-rated or something. So, At any rate, we lived in this farming community. It was farming and ranching. Um, but every day at 10 o'clock, all of the farmers, the ranchers, and the local businessmen would show up at the cafe, and we would uh, push the tables together and gamble for who was going to buy the coffee. So we'd... It was a great time to come out, and you'd hear about crop prices and crop futures and the different local um, stuff that was happening and the, the gossip that was going on. But after a while, you know, the dice cup came out, the bar dice, a little cup with five dice in it, and we would gamble to see who was going to buy the coffee. So every time the dice went around, one person was eliminated. So if there's 20 guys, you know, after 20 trips around, the table, one guy has to buy 20 cups of coffee. That was okay with me because I figured, you know, I was there for seven years. After a while, you're just going to buy your own coffee, right? It doesn't really matter how many people you're gambling with. The, the statistics are that you're going to buy your own coffee, with one exception. Every once in a while, somebody would come in late after everybody had already gambled. See? So whoever's stuck buying 20 cups, the late guy has to gamble against him for, for who's going to buy. So your, your chances are still 50-50, but you're gambling your one cup against their 20 cups of coffee. Well, in this group of guys, this really good friend of mine was a, both a farmer and a rancher, a huge uh, farming and ranching in eastern Washington. He had gambled at the end of the last season w with his lentil crop. And so he decided rather than to sell it as he took it off the field, he was going to store it because he was gambling that the price was going to go up on lentils. They were around 37 cents a bushel back then or something. He was gambling. It was still an expansion crop, so it was, the price was going to go up, but it didn't. And overnight, the price of lentils tanked, and my friend Ernie lost a million dollars in one night gambling on the direction of the lentils. Well, the rest of the guys couldn't wait until Ernie showed up the next day because they were going to rib him, and boy, did they. So Ernie sits down, we're rolling dice for coffee, and somebody says, so, Ernie, what's it like to lose a million dollars? And Ernie was, you know, such a humble guy. Ernie says, well, you, you can't mourn over something you never had. So, you know, I thought that was a pretty good answer to the, the problem. But still, can you imagine losing a million dollars on the roll of the dice? There is a... 
a, a form of divination called cubology or astrologomancy. And basically what it is is rolling the dice to try to determine the future. You roll the dice, and the dice have either numbers or characters on them. And as you roll them, of course, you get this random sequence of numbers and characters, and the diviner uses these random sequences according to some set of rules and, and procedure to come up with um, your future. And this rolling of the dice, whether you're talking about cubes like we use or the rolling of the bones, predates written history. It goes back as far as anybody can remember. The, the rolling of the dice can sometimes be idiomatic, but quite often the rolling of the dice to determine the future is quite literal, and that's what we're talking about today. The dice that were used in Persia at the time were called pur, P-U-R, and the plural in Hebrew of pur is purim. So the Feast of Purim is what the Jews celebrate to this day to remember the book of Esther. So what they're literally celebrating is the Feast of Rolling the Dice or Casting the Dice. And that's really ironic that the, that the book of Esther has been known as the, as the Feast of Rolling the Dice because if anything, it's not about the randomness, the things that happen just because men act as, as they would. It's not about chance. It's not about randomness. It's not about just things happening coincidentally. The whole book of Esther, like the book of Ruth, is all about God's providence, that God is working amidst what seems to be random events, and he is guiding the outcome according to his plan. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 2, where we left off last week in 2.19. Now, I realize that rolling the dice or the dice is cast, I'm swiping the title from Alea Iacta Est, which is Latin for a rolling, that, or the, the die has been thrown or the die has been rolled, and it's usually attributed to when Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon on the 10th of January, 49 BC, against the orders of the Senate that no army was to come across south to the Rubicon, and Caesar, Julius Caesar enters into a great civil war with Pompey at that time, and he says, the die is cast. This has nothing to do with that, so, but I'm aware of it. But as you remember, Esther begins with this great feast or banquet, it's the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as we know him. And this great feast is actually a war council that's being held because Xerxes is planning an, an invasion of Greece. And so he, he makes this great war council in 483 BC. He invites all of his military leaders, the generals, the governors, the satrapies to come to Susa, the winter capital, because he's trying to razzle-dazzle them. He brings them in, and he's showing them this great um, feast, this, this great display of his glory and his wealth, because he needs them to rally to his side when he attacks Greece. He needs to show them he can afford a war. He needs to show them that he can reward the people who join him in the war. He's trying to show them that there's a benefit for their loyalty. So the great finality of this six months of war council and feasting, he orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to appear in her royal garments, her crown. This is the, this is the, the fireworks at the end of the show. This is the great um, 
razzle-dazzle to all the dignitaries, and he tells her she's to come out and display herself in all of her glory as a reflection of his great glory. It's the highlight of his display of wealth, and she says no. And he is publicly humiliated. He's furious. He's concerned that people are going to think, if you can't control your wife, how are you going to control an empire? And so he, he consults his advisors, and they tell him to, to uh, dismiss her. She's deposed, since she will not come when she's ordered to. She may not come. She will forever lose the privilege of being in his presence. So what follows next? Where are we at now? Right at the beginning of chapter 2, what follows next is a four-year battle with Greece. You guys know this from history because they, Persia was invading Greece, and they're held up at Thermopylae by the 300 Spartans. Remember at the Battle of Thermopylae? And because of this delay, it is a, it is a disaster at the Battle of Salamis. And so Xerxes Ahasuerus comes back embarrassed, and it was a very expensive campaign. He comes back to an empty palace. He misses, he misses Vashti, and they decide, hey, I got an idea. Let's throw a beauty contest, and the best-looking babe gets to be queen. And notice, he doesn't care anything about her association with a family or her political ties. The only thing that he cares about who's going to be queen next is she has to be a virgin. She has to be um, good-looking, and a virgin. That's all. That, that's all. So if you can do that, you can be queen. And Esther gets drawn in, and she is welcomed into the king's harem. She's uh, selected again only because of her striking good looks. For 12 months, she receives uh, beauty treatments, and then it becomes her turn to impress the king. She has a night in the king's chamber. Esther, as a consequence of that, she wins the beauty contest, and she becomes queen of Persia in 479 B.C. The end of chapter 2, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And that brings us now to our text today, chapter 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So uh, there's a temporal gap that exists between where we left off last week at 2.18, where we begin today at 2.19. Um, don't exactly know how much time, but if if two... If two 19 through 23 are to be connected in time with chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It's been approximately four years that have, have elapsed. We've gone from a, a, a kingdom which is in disarray because of the, the loss of, of the war with Greece to now a kingdom which is in disarray because of some internal conflicts are happening. There's some internal 
dissension on the royal Acropolis itself. So at some point, we we're told, there is a second gathering of the virgins. Now, we don't really know why, because Esther won the beauty contest. We, we have a champion, and there's been a lot of guesswork. Probably the king uh, wanted to continue collecting virgins, uh, even in spite of the fact that he'd already crowned one as to be his king, queen, I mean. And so there's this second gathering merely for his pleasure. At any reason, at any rate, we are told that while that was happening, Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate. Now, that doesn't mean that, that Mordecai was loitering around at the opening in the wall. This uh, gate, much like a medieval toll booth, is not just a hole in the wall with doors that shut. This gate was a big administrative center. and. Um, it was the place where all legal matters, commercial uh, action, transactions are made. Remember we talked about the gate at Bethlehem where um, Boaz met with the, the closer redeemer. So this is a place of administration. In Susa, this gate is huge. They, they have found this gate, archeological evidence from Susa, that says the gate was 131 feet wide and 92 feet deep. We're not talking again about an opening in the wall. We're talking about a big building. So you'd come through the opening in the wall into this huge covered courtyard um, that was, the center section was a big squared opening and it had two rectangular uh, antechambers on either side. And the, the middle led from the, the door, the hole in the wall, into the central court of the palace. This uh, central hall was supported by four columns. Each one of these columns had an inscription written in three different languages that read, Xerxes the king says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, the gate, Darius the king made it, he who was my father. So it's dedicated to Darius, who is Xerxes, or Hashuerus' father. So whoever wrote the book of Esther seems to be really familiar with the architecture of the, the city of Susa. At any rate, the term sitting in the king's gate does not mean that Mordecai was hanging around or loitering or just waiting for something to happen. What it means is that he had an official position in the royal Persian court. And it was a, 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 an idiom that is used to say he has a position in the palace administration. So just like what we say today, that we say that the judge is sitting on the bench. If the judge is sitting on the bench, we don't think there's a pew back there that his butt is parked on. You know, if he's sitting on the bench, it means that he's acting in a judicial uh, position, that he has a, a place, he's, he's presiding over a court of law. So similarly, when it says Mordecai was sitting in the gate, it means he's holding an office in the palace administration and he's doing so when this second gathering of the virgins takes place. Now we're told that while he's there in this official position in the palace, that a, uh, a plot is made known to him. There's two of the king's guards who guard the threshold who have decided for some reason, we're not told why, that they're angry with the king and they want to murder him. Mordecai gets wind that these two guys intend to uh, assassinate the king and he goes and tells his stepdaughter or cousin, cousin would be the best way to put it, he tells Esther, 
about this plot to have the king assassinated. She goes and tells the king, but notice she's very careful to tell the king this information came from Mordecai. So an investigation is launched. It turns out these two guys actually are conspiring. They're hung on the gallows. Mordecai's name is written in the king's book of people to remember to give thanks to, recorded in, his, in this, uh, um, this record book. Now that's a detail you need to remember because it becomes a crucial part of the story we're going to get to in a, in a couple weeks. Uh, so their, their plot is foiled. However, it was, it was a good plot because they were guarding the threshold. They would have had good opportunity to off the king when he, when he comes through the door. Herodotus reports that although this plot failed, a later plot um, was successful in that the, uh, uh, the assassination took place in Mordecai, excuse me, in King Xerxes Ahasuerus' bedchambers in 465 BC. So, there's a lot of people that wanted to off the king. Uh, Esther 3.1. After these things, King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. Xerxes, promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman, and in order to, order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Notice here, Haman is introduced to us as Haman the Agite. Now that's really significant to the development of this plot here because Agag, remember, was the king of the Amalekites. When Israel was coming up out of Egypt, the Amalekites didn't want Israel to succeed, and they began to attack Israel initially by just picking off the stragglers in the rear. They didn't want to engage a frontal assault on Israel's army, their armed men, so they began picking off the old people, the stragglers, the young people that were at the rear of the train, and uh, because of that, Deuteronomy 25, I don't know what, 25? Anyway, they, what? Yeah, that's it. Deuteronomy 25, 17. Um, because of that, uh, they're cursed by God, and God orders Israel to completely annihilate, remove their memory from the face of the earth. Now, as things go on, remember, Saul is given the task of, of carrying this cursed uh, assignment out. Saul is given the task to attack the Amalekites, and completely annihilate them, wipe them off the face of the earth, particularly their king, Agag. Saul, however, thinks, you know, I got a better idea. Instead of obeying God, you know what I would do if I were God? This is what I would do. I would bring Agag back. And so Saul does not fulfill his assignment to kill 
Agag. He brings him back. Um, Samuel does, however. But as a consequence, there's this bitterness between the Amalekites and Israel. There's this antagonism between these two groups. And so consequently now, Haman, the Agite, who is a descendant from King Agag, he, uh, he gets promoted and Mordecai can't bring himself to acknowledge him, this Agag, Agite, Ag, Agite, Haman, as his superior. And so he won't, he won't bow down. But let's take a side trip here. Look back to chapter 2 in verse 5 and 6 where we're introduced to Malachi, excuse me, Mordecai, uh, and, and we're told that Mordecai is from the tribe of uh, Kish. Uh, just a minute, i got to get started on it. Uh, the son of Shim, Jer, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, or something like that. Who else has got that heritage? King Saul. So Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul or of the same branch. The same. So you have these two guys who are the arch enemies, the arch representatives of each group. You have the, the descendant of the King Agag and a descendant of King Saul. And so we have this this uh, heightened animosity between these two guys. So as, as, these, as, as, uh, as, as Haman is, is marching through the palace or coming through the, the toll booth, the, the king's gate, everybody does two things. They bow down and pay homage. So to bow down is, would be a typical gesture of respect, recognition of somebody who's in authority over you. To pay homage sometimes meant you'd, you'd literally throw yourself on the ground and, and kneel before them. Probably not in the Persian court. The, the paying homage is probably just an exaggerated bow. But you know, Mordecai's not willing to do either one of these things. He's not willing to recognize um, uh, Haman as, as uh, as someone who's, who's above him or an authority. Now, recognize, too, it would have been just courtesy to acknowledge somebody who's in a position of authority, much like standing up when the judge walks into the room. You stand up as a matter of protocol. But in this case, the king commands. Now, it seems totally unnecessary that the king would command people to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But... The point that I'm making here is Mordecai's not just simply violating protocol. He's not just being rude. He's violating the king's command. And so his friends, the other officials of the court, start to question him. Why are you being so disrespectful? Why are you being so obstinate? Why don't you bow down? Why would you be so insubordinate that you're not only not showing the proper respect to someone who's an official, you're disrespecting and defying the order of the king. You no, know, I, I admit that we are not specifically told that the reasons for Mordecai's disrespect, but we are rather puzzled because the Old Testament does not prohibit the Jews from bowing before a pagan ruler, or a, and it was often done. Remember. Daniel does, Nehemiah does. 
So the Old Testament doesn't tell the Jews that they can't bow before a pagan or bow before somebody. They can't worship the person. That was the big difference between the first century Christians with Caesar and Daniel in this, and Nehemiah in this same kingdom of Persia. See, they're, they're bowing in respect to that position, that, that office. Now, even if the guy's a dirtbag, they recognize the, the height, the, the respect that the office is due. But in, in first century Christianity, the, the Christians were meant to bow down and acknowledge Caesar not only as, uh, as king, but as Lord, as God, as deity. So they were, they were told they had needed to offer this pinch of incense and acknowledge that Caesar is God. And they said, we can't do that. But nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere are Jews forbidden from bowing. And, and we see all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of, of, of the Old Testament saints bowing and acknowledging. So it's puzzling not only to us, but it's puzzling to these other officials why Mordecai won't obey the king's command. Again, it is not a command to worship. It is a demand to show respect to somebody who is a dignitary who holds an office. Again, the language is, is curious because they acknowledge this is not just simply a breach of protocol. You could, you could violate the protocol and it might be overlooked, but that's not what's happening here. They're violating the command of the king. I asked a lawyer here about one half hours ago, if you didn't stand up when the, you know, the bailiff says, well, the judge is coming in, will, will everyone please rise? If you didn't stand up, would you be violating the law? I mean, obviously you're violating protocol because you're, you're supposed to show respect to the office of the judge. And, and the, the barrister told me that uh, you might be held in contempt of court if you didn't do that. So even if it's not a law, you could be held in contempt of court. So there's a parallel here that I'm trying to draw between showing respect has nothing to do with worshiping um, the, that person. Anyway, so Mordecai is, is in violation of the law, and his friends try to talk him out of it. It says daily they, they said, why are you doing that? Why are you behaving the way you are? And, and Mordecai, for the most part, doesn't say anything. They keep pressing him on the issue. Somewhere along the line, he leaks it out. He doesn't tell them why, but he, leaks, he at least leaks out that he is a Jew. So now they go with this information to Haman, who's now the superior, the second highest in command, and they tell Haman what Mordecai is doing. And look at... Uh, Oh, I can't quite see what verse it is, where, where it says they question Haman whether he will allow this situation to stand, which I think is completely ironic because that's exactly what Mordecai is doing. He's standing instead of, instead of, oh, never mind. At any rate, well, I just thought it was a humorous way to put it, that Mordecai uh, will stand, but he won't bow, and they want to know whether his compliance or lack of thereof will stand or not. Now... There's another irony that strikes me right here, and that is just a minute ago we were talking about how Mordecai um, finds out about this plot, and he goes to uh, inform someone of the betrayal. And now the exact same thing is happening, but the shoe's on the other foot, because now Mordecai is ratted out, and the insinuation is... Uh, that Mordecai is betraying both the king and Haman. 
Now, when, Mor when Haman finds out that Mordecai won't bow down, apparently he's not aware of it up to this point. He's just so enthralled by all the attention he gets when everybody else is bowing down in the room. He doesn't notice this one guy not bowing down, just standing, presumably, in the back. But when he finds out, he's furious because he has not been shown the proper respect and dignification that, that, he, that he deserves, but he's furious when he finds out that the fellow who's doing it is a Jew because that ignites this age-old hatred between these two long-standing enemies, Israel and the Amalekites. And the result is that Haman is so furious it's not enough to have Malachi executed. He's going to wipe out everybody that's associated with Malachi. Everything that Malachi represents is going to go down with him. So his plan is that he's going to have all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. This empire stretches from India to Turkey. It's huge. He's going to have every Jew in the entire empire um, put to death as a, the objects of his hatred. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. Now, um, to determine the most propitious time to attack the Jews, Haman brings in these diviners, and they roll the dice. Basically, they have a bar dice cup, and they're, they're rolling the dice. These dice, these poor, uh, archaeologists have found these things, and they look nearly identical to the dice we use today. They're made out of clay. They have the same dot patterns as the dice we use today. He brings these guys in. Now, don't think that he starts rolling dice for days on end, because that you might think from the way we, the text reads that day after day they threw the dice. Now, what they did was they, they're, they, they're sitting down with a calendar, and they throw the dice which day of the week, and they end up on a particular day of the week, and which week of the month, and they start rolling the dice for which week of the month, which month of the year. And so they roll the dice, and so this all happens all at once, not over days and months. So all at once this happens. They're rolling the dice. They're casting the dice to determine which day the gods have chosen to annihilate the Jews. Significantly, the day that Haman is rolling these dice, casting this, uh, this lot, is the first month of the year, Nisan. The significance is that this is the same month that the Jews are going to be celebrating Passover. So the very day that this order is given is the night before Passover. Not the order to have them killed, but when the order comes out. Is the, is the night before Passover. This is, this is so significant that if you were a Jew, this would be gripping. The, just the, the, here's the first question that comes to, to your mind as a Jew. Why are we here in Persia? The reason is we as a people have violated God's covenant command, and this is what has happened to us as a consequence. The question then is, Will God continue to protect us and cover us even though we are living in violation of the covenant commands? You see how gripping that whole question would be? 
And the question would further be exacerbated because the, the night that you were selecting the Passover lamb to be slaughtered is the night the Jews are being selected to be slaughtered. The, the irony would have been, would have been gripping. This, this all took, takes place on the 10th of Nisan. It would be impossible to miss this, this correlation that the that lambs are being slaughtered, the Jews are being chosen to be slaughtered as well. And just because you didn't happen to live in Susa would not mean that you were safe from this fate because while they're rolling the dice to see what's going to happen to the Jews in Susa, the, this fate is going to be shared by all the Jews empire-wide, including the Jews who at this moment are back in Jerusalem rebuilding the city. Their fate is also being decided by the roll of the dice in faraway Susa. History has shown that there is a, a force at work in the world which is bent on destroying God's people and trying to thwart God's promises. And that hidden force can be unleashed in the power of the world's greatest and mightiest nations by using the depraved nature of the people, the men who are entrusted with that power. Anyway, I'll come back to that. Verse 8, I think. Yeah. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, for they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, Hamadatha. Notice there's another title that he earns right here, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And as we already noted, this is about five years after uh, Esther has become queen in Persia. And Haman now enters into the presence of the king and he begins to skillfully manipulate the king to gain support for his own evil plans. And he begins by pointing out there's a peculiar people in this kingdom. Well, that part is so, so far, that's true. They are a peculiar people and they have their own rules and their own laws. But then he adds, these people don't obey the law of the kingdom. Well, technically, we're only talking about one guy, right? We're, we're not talking about the whole race of people. We're talking about one guy, Mordecai, who's only violated one ruling, that is to bow down before the king. So it's, at best, a gross exaggeration to, to indict an entire people group because Haman won't bow down before me. Haman carefully... Um, leaves out the information that it, it, what, which people group this is. He doesn't say it is the Jews. I don't know if uh, Esther is suspected of being a Jew, if Haman knows that or not. 
he at least knows that Mordecai is a Jew and Esther is his cousin. So uh, he's really careful at this point to not say which group of people he's referring to. But he says it's not to the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, notice what he does next. He offers a bribe. He offers the king 10,000 talents of silver. Again, Herodotus reports that uh, Xerxes' father, Darius, his annual tribute was 14,650 talents of silver that he would get through taxes or donations from the different satrapies. So Haman's offer is 69% of the whole year's revenue. One, it's really doubtful that Haman has that much money. That's 200 tons of silver. Two, it's a, it's a huge bribe, you know, 69% of the year's tax value. Uh, my guess is Haman doesn't have that kind of money, but he knows how he's going to get it. And that is when they plunder the Jews, they'll have the 10,000 talents. So the, Haman's probably guessing he'll get it when the, when the Jews are, are destroyed. At any rate, it's a, it's a, it's a very exaggerated amount and the king takes the bait. So the king gives Haman his signet ring, you know, the kind of thing where you'd melt the wax and you'd emboss the king's symbol on the wax. So if you had that signet ring, you had the power of the king. You had the power to make law and to put it into effect. So and the king says, yeah, whatever, just do what you want to. Here's the authority. Here's the signet ring that gives you the authority. And like I said, Verse 10 clarifies what all of the previous verses implied because we are told Haman is the enemy of the Jews. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script and every people in his own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces and with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. That's rather redundant, isn't it? If you did one, you're doing the other two. And notice who, whom? Notice who he's suggesting needs to be destroyed, annihilated, and killed. He doesn't just say, destroy the Jews. No, he's more specific than that. Destroy all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province uh, by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So written into every native language throughout the entire empire, every people group is this edict with the instructions to destroy everyone of the Jewish people. Now notice to whom, I thought this was curious too, to whom these orders are given. Every people group may go out and kill Jews. 
but the order is not given to the Imperial Army. To the, the citizens are given the authority to go out and murder all of the Jews. Again, he's piling up these verbs, destroy, kill, annihilate. One of those would have been sufficient, but the point is, the reason that we have these repetitive verbs is we're supposed to see that the language is displaying this all-consumed hatred of the Jews that, that Haman feels. And it's this provision that he adds to, to loot after you've destroyed, to take from them whatever you want, and to do it with whatever force you want. Certainly, even if you didn't hate the Jews, to be told if you kill them you can take their stuff would incite a lot of people to join in with the, this plan. So the edict informs them that this will take place on a certain day. Curiously, it's 11 months in the future. And I'm one of those guys that's got a beard that needs to be stroked. And I'm thinking, why does he, why does he even make this public knowledge if he's going to destroy a people group 11 months from now? You know, because wouldn't that give them a chance to maybe head for the hills to escape? What's the reason for an 11-month heads up that, of what he plans to do? I mean, it can't be administrative because the Persians have a, a very efficient administrative service. It can't, be, uh, it can't be that they need 11 months to plan the murders. It doesn't take that long to, to, to plan to murder somebody. The only thing I could come up with while I'm pulling on my beard is he does this strictly to make the Jews squirm. There's nowhere that they can go. The whole empire is under this edict. The Jews have nowhere to escape to. All they can do is fret for 11 months as they see this day of their execution growing cold, closer and closer. My only conclusion, and I'm just guessing here, is just this was, this was an intention to uh, make the Jews nervous about about what's going to happen to them. Oh, I've lost my place. I started moving pages because I wasn't thinking. At any rate, uh, verse 15 has an interesting thing, uh, comment on the end of there. It says the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I think the reason that the whole city is in confusion here is not everybody's against the Jews. And they're curious why this group is picked out among all the rest. You know, what, what have they done? But on the other hand, there's really nothing they can do about it because a decree has been given in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed, that the Jews are going to be annihilated on this day. And so the, there's, a, there's a confusion that the citizenry has about why we're killing Jews. Very similar to the confusion that took place in World War II during occupied Europe when these Jews were also under this uh, edict for execution, and the people didn't know what to do to help their Jewish friends or to avert the Holocaust that was going to be happening to them. So um, in the same way, here many people in this empire, especially here at Susa, are confused about what's going on. But nevertheless, in both cases, they feel helpless to do anything about it. The lot has been cast. The dies, the die has been thrown, and there's really nothing they can do to prevent this impending tragedy. I notice there's an interesting parallel here between what's happening to the, the Jews in Persia and ourselves 
today. And the irony is that God himself has a lot more reason to act against us than Haman and Xerxes did against the Jews. Like Mordecai, we have not kept God's law. We have refused to bow down before him, to submit to him as we should. We have not given him the honor that is due to him as by right of him being the creator, and by right of him being Lord of his universe. And it is actually true in our case that it is not to God's profit to tolerate us. It doesn't benefit God in any way to put up with us. We were born cosmic rebels against his goodness and his grace. And what's more, like the Jews had a Haman, we have an enemy, Satan, who's continually standing before the king, and he is correctly rightfully pointing out to the king why we should not be tolerated, what we have done in violation to the king's command. And he gives these correct reasons why we should not even be allowed to live. An edict for our destruction could legitimately be signed by God because we would deserve it. But that's not how God, our sovereign king, has chosen to deal with us. Look what the king has done instead. He has not listened to the accuser. And he instead has said, yes, a violation has occurred. Sins are piled up against each one of us. And the judgment would rightly fall on every one of us, but our king says the judgment will be paid by my son. The wrath that you deserve, the anger, the indignation, the punishment, the terror, the abuse at the hands of the enemy have come upon his son. Paradoxically, I think it's interesting that the wrath of Satan against God's people, against those who follow his son. He uses human agents to carry out his plan of destroying us and destroying Jesus. He uses these human agents who, acting on their own free will, their own choice, chose to take Jesus and nail him to the cross. Well, Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. They they may have been ignorant of what part they play, but nevertheless, we are told that in all of this, even though these people acted in their free will, even though they were being manipulated by a powerful accuser in Satan, yet all of this took place according to God's sovereign plan. So while all of the evil things are taking place, concurrently, God is manipulating these different events um, for his, his own good. God is is absolutely sovereign. And it, there's great paradox that while Satan is, is, is at work through these worldly powers, nevertheless, all of these actions and all of these powers are constrained by God's eternal decrees. And God is work, working concurrently. That's a theological term, concurrence. While this is taking place by the free will of man, by the manipulation of Satan, God is concurrently, at the same time, 
working through these evil things, these sinful things, to fulfill his perfect plan. Notice that when in the Roman Empire, when the church is being assaulted by the government, the people are being oppressed, murdered. They pray not for their own safety, but they pray that God's will would be done, that they would have boldness in proclaiming the gospel. That's the same confidence that Christians can face the power of evil today, whether that evil is satanic or demonic, or whether it is just the evil of, of wicked men. The book of Revelation was written to encourage a particular group of Christians who, like the Jews of Susa, found themselves in a position where they are threatened when the government under which they lived had turned beastly. The Revelation shows that despite the terrible power of the world's empower of the world's empires nevertheless in the end the true king of kings the sovereign lord of the universe will have victory christians are to live faithfully day by day even those who are under the shadow of this persecution and death after he describes this beast and the satanic Power in Revelation, John acknowledges that, like their Lord, Christians will suffer and die. Christians will suffer and die when the government turns against them, just as the Roman Empire did. However, we are told that we are safe in Christ Jesus, and the victory will ultimately be His, and God will preserve His people for His purposes. Revelations 13, 9, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of the saint. So God intends to save and protect his people ultimately, and the world will not be destroyed, and the church will not be destroyed by those who remain in wicked opposition of, of, of Jesus Christ, because there's no... There's no power, there's, there's no enemy that can thwart God's electing purpose. But that does not mean that God's elect people will be spared suffering, persecution, and tribulation. But see, there's always the danger in the church that people will point out to the ultimate victory in Christ Jesus and conclude, therefore, that we will be spared from any hardship. We will be spared from any persecution. We won't be put to death. The book of Esther will not permit us to come to that conclusion. The final victory is assured, but God's people also suffer under the oppression of evil. And that has always been the case, and it's still the case in the world today. We are quite insulated from that. It doesn't cost us anything to make a pro proclamation of our faith in Jesus Christ. But God's people also suffer from the evil. And the challenge for us is to keep both the hope and final victory in tension with the reality of current pain and, and keep these things in proper tension. Philippians 1.20 reminds us that even though we, we live with hope of Christ, it is a life that we live in the context of suffering. There's two 
great surprises in the world. The first is that God has loved us so much. And the second surprise is that we, in return, continue to love him and trust him so little. Anyway, we need to end Esther's story here for now, and we leave them in this position of fear and confusion, and they're wondering, where, where is God in all of this? How do we see God in control? Here we see the die is cast. The fate is fatal, if you will. Haman is determined the fate of an entire Jewish race by the roll of the dice, but ultimately... God is in control of the future, and his will cannot be overruled. It cannot be overturned. He reveals to us in his word what his plan is, and that we find out that the future is in his hands. It's not in the hands that roll the dice. Let's pray. We have not been promised a life of ease or heaven, this side of heaven. The only thing that we have been promised is if we will follow Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted, that we should expect tribulation. But our hope is not in how we are treated. Our confidence is not in the security of our government, our money, our armed forces, our economy. Our confidence, our hope, our future is in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and who is coming again in the kingdom that he will establish here on earth. And we look forward to that. But I pray that we as maturing believers, I pray first that we don't expect the a life of ease or think it exceptional when our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering persecution because of the name of Christ Jesus. Remind us to pray for them. Remind us to pray not just that their suffering would be eased, but that they would be given boldness to share Christ in the midst of the crisis. I pray in contrast with the ease that we have that we would be bold to share Christ right here in Port Townsend. Father, I ask that you would make us maturing Christians and active worshipers, not just simply better educated. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join us. For